Genesis chapter 2 from 18 to 25. Thanks, Christo. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man and said, and, sorry, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, and she was, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Thanks, Christo. Who are you? What makes you human? Why are you here? Not here physically today, but why are you here in general as a person? These are the sorts of questions that we've been asking over the last few weeks as we have considered the biblical account of creation. They're questions of identity, of humanity, of meaning and purpose. And I want to say uh, at the beginning today that these questions can often lead to some pretty controversial answers. Uh, Here at Willow, we are primarily concerned with the answers that the Bible gives us. And so if you're here today uh, visiting with us and you don't follow Jesus, can I graciously ask that you'll hear us out about what the Bible says? Uh, We're not here to force opinions on you, uh, but we do respect your ability to discern it, to taste it, to chew on it before refusing it or spitting it out. And so some of the Bible's answers to these questions are, well, we are creatures made by a loving creator, God. That's who we are. That being human means being like God, made in his image, although not God himself, lesser than God. And we're here to continue his work of creating and sustaining, of forming and ordering, of caring for creation and caring for our fellow image bearers. This is what it means for us to be stewards. That is our purpose. And over the last couple of weeks, we have zoomed in on the Garden of Eden as the original context for this human function. This paradise was a place of God's provision. It was abundant and varied. It was a place of his purpose, where there could be work and rest and worship. And it was a place to be populated, for humanity to multiply, to thrive, to flourish to build family, to build community, to build society. A place to form and to fill. And that's what we're talking about, especially today, in the last message of this series. God's design in relationships, 
in marriage and in family. And isn't it a great day to be doing that, uh, both on Father's Day and in a baptism service? But before we come to the relationships, we need to return briefly to the topic of gender. Uh, We covered this back in chapter 1, where it says, male and female, he created them. And there we considered how biology and sexuality are a part of God's good original design. Uh, How the nature of the sexes are made to be complementary. But here in chapter 2, the creation of genders is reaffirmed in the special creation of Eve. Uh, Although you'll notice that she's not given her name Eve until in chapter 3. She is simply at this point called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this highlights two very important realities. The first is that she is the same as the man. She's made from the same stuff as him. She is equally a human being as him. As we saw in chapter 1, she's equally made in the image of God, equal in humanity, equal in dignity, and equal in identity. And so far from creating a sexist society or the chauvinist hell that's painted in The Handmaid's Tale where concubines are literally called of man or of insert name, instead this is actually to highlight equality and honour. She's from the side of man, not from the head, not from the foot, from the side for she is his equal. And before she's identified as Eve, which means mother, she is simply woman. That is, she's not just a baby-making machine. That is not her sole purpose. It's not just for Adam's legacy or man's legacy. And no matter how many cultures have wronged women in this, uh, this way, saying that's your only purpose, including Christian cultures, that's not justified in the Bible. And the New Testament affirms the equality of, of men and women in redemption as well as creation. But this is not to say that the genders are identical. They may be the same in humanity, but they are different in biology. They may be the same in dignity, but they are different in ability. So both are stronger and weaker than the other in different ways. They are complementary as God designed it. So women excel at nurturing. And males by birth at this time are not able to bear children and that's unlikely to change. Men excel in physical strength and physical work. And it could be that that's why there are more trans women pushing to play women's sports than there are trans men pushing to play men's sports. That's an unpopular thing to say, I know. But there's truth behind it. And I don't raise these controversial issues simply to highlight difference and division. I actually raise them to point to unity. God made the two genders to be joined in relationship. Same but different. Two but one. And yes, there is a binary element to that. In fact, all of creation has a binary flow through it. And yet complementary. Steve McAlpine points this out in one of his books. He says, light and dark. Uh, We've looked at these too. Day and night, work and rest, male and female, heaven and earth, creator and creature. But in all of it, there is diversity and also unity. 
Consider people in general, different in personality, different in race, different in culture and in background. And it highlights not division among us, but diversity. That's the point. And yet through relationships, there is unity. There is oneness. There is a coming together. Just as God himself is three persons with different roles and functions, yet in one being, joined. He is relationship defined, diverse, complementary, and united. And see, there was only one thing that was not good about God's creation before sin. And that was the man being alone. Everything was good in the universe, but that Adam was all on his own. I mean, yes, he had a relationship with God and it was deep, it was intimate. We saw that last week. And yes, he had the animals around him, but God was superior and the animals inferior. He was missing a mate. He's equal. He was missing a creature, a friend, a co-worker, a teammate. He was missing a helper. And again, that word helper is not to say that the woman was an assistant or in any way inferior. No, that they would be helpers to each other. Companions. Every human being a helper to every other human being. See, relationships are about being a team in the function that God's given us, in his purpose for us. The stewarding, the cultivating, the creating, the sustaining, the forming, the ordering, whatever it might be, we do it as a team, not on our own. On our own, we we usually do the opposite, but together, God works this through through us. We do it in community, not in isolation. And so whether it's families, or whether it's churches, or whether it's sports clubs, or whether it's work teams, or school classes, or political parties, or any other collection of people, it's about teamwork in God's purposes of caring for creation and caring for each other. It's been so interesting to see what the pandemic has revealed about our society and values today, uh, that without a doubt it has shown a super strong emphasis on the individual and somewhat of a neglect of community and relationships. I mean, sure, leaders will talk about the greater good, uh, but that's merely referring to the collection of individuals. It's referring to the sum quantity of lives or the number of people we can keep alive. But families are suffering under harsh lockdowns. Workers work in isolation at home. Gatherings are forbidden and people are told to avoid each other. And it's just not healthy for people who are made to be connected, made to be in relationship. And I'm not making any kind of political statement here. I'm just saying that underneath all of it, we can see the values in our society. Even the shifts that have redefined marriage and family in our time which talk about tolerance and inclusion, they are often more about individual desire and choice and preference rather than the good of the collective. And so these days, nobody is sacrificing for family or community. Nobody's saying, I'm going to put aside my preference in order for for the family or, or for others around me. Instead, family and community are to be sacrificed for individual happiness. 
And yet the irony is loneliness is on an incredible rise in our society today. But family and community have always been God's emphasis. In the beginning, through his people Israel, and in the church today. The reason that we celebrate baptism, uh, including that of babies, is, is not just because God has created some more individuals, although he's definitely done that, but also because he's grown the community. He's bolstered families. He's bolstered the church family. He's bolstered society. And so it is now to marriage and family that we turn because Genesis 2 gives us the blueprint for that as well. As soon as God has made both genders, he brings them together in the definition of marriage. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And there's three parts to that verse. First, the man leaves his original family, as does the woman. Second, they cleave together and they become a new family unit. And then third, they become one flesh. And the Hebrew word for one there is the same as the word that describes the oneness of God. Uh, For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so it marks this incredibly deep union. Not just sexually, but socially and spiritually as well. In this one verse, marriage is defined as complementary, as exclusive, as permanent, and as sealed by God. And while it is two equal but different genders, it's all about the love and the respect between them. And so the little song that Adam sings when he first sees Eve is basically a love song. You know, it's this overflowing burst of joy as he meets his new wife. You know, this is the the first time a man saw a woman. And so he just busts out into song. This is my own flesh and blood. She's beautiful. This is awesome. Matthew Henry says it uh, beautifully in regards to Eve being made from Adam's rib. He says, not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. And no matter what people are saying about gender today, this is deep down what men and women are seeking. This is the love that marriage is built around and which is ultimately defined by Jesus who loves the church like a bride and gives himself up for her goes to his death for her. And so Paul says to husbands, love your wives with the same protective, sacrificial, servant-hearted love. But even though marriage is designed and instituted here, it is not necessarily mandated. Relationship is mandated. You can't be alone. You'll die if you're alone but not marriage necessarily. That is, people do not have to get married. Don't get me wrong, I'm not referring here to sexual relationships. We believe that sex is exclusively for marriage. God says they become one flesh. And that's one of the boundaries that we talked about last week when we looked at worship and obedience. 
But our current culture is so obsessed with sex being at the center and the right to have sex with whoever you want to that we forget about fulfilling non-sexual relationships. And that's Christians included. Think about friendships. Think about spiritual connections. Think about brothers and sisters in Jesus. Jesus, who, by the way, never got married, never had a sexual relationship. And see, when God says it's not good for people to be alone, he's not talking about singleness. Aloneness or isolation is bad, yes. But singleness is good. Paul makes that really clear. And there are so many good relationships that you can enjoy that are not romantic. And for those who are married, the longer you stay together, the more you know it's based less on romance and more on love and commitment. And love and commitment can be shared in other contexts. So our culture might gasp in shock at the suggestion that anyone would or should remain a virgin and single for the sake of faith, whether it's due to circumstance or attraction or sheer will. But again, that's because our culture is run by sex. And it even causes some of our gender problems. Male and female have become so narrowly defined by stereotypes that men who are a little more feminine and women who are a little more masculine feel out of place and are forced into this place of questioning. And that's not about religion per se, but that many religious people have bought into it, us included, into the stereotypes. And so masculinity comes under fire and femininity becomes an idol all because we shallowly reinforce the stereotypes. Say, oh, men are like this, they're blokey, blah, 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 and women are soft and like this. And it's rubbish a lot of the time. That's not what the Bible presents. And many deep, healthy, fulfilling, same-sex relationships become needlessly sexualized, causing us to question biology itself because sex rules the day. And all of it puts unnecessary and undue pressure on single people, especially singles who choose celibacy, because it communicates that you cannot be human without sex. And it's absolute garbage. As a church, we need to re-emphasize the goodness and the fulfillment of non-marriage relationships. We need to stop limiting our social interactions just to other couples, if that's what you do. We need to focus on friendships that also promote love and commitment. We need to invite and include and embrace everyone, no matter their situation. Consider, would Paul, as a single guy, have found Willow a loving, inclusive church to join? There is one purpose in creation that demands marriage, and that is procreation. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. This is the filling that complements the forming uh, from a few weeks back. 
And this is absolutely incredible. I've, I've kind of been leading up to this and pointing to it as we've gone. But this is amazing stuff that God would make us so like him, so much in his image, that he actually gives us the ability to create life. Do we ever really stop and think about how amazing that is? That he entrusts us with this huge responsibility, go and create more people. That is phenomenal. And I hope that whoever you are, whether a believer or not, you can appreciate the magnitude of this purpose and this human ability. It is not just about the individual and the individual's choices and rights. It's about families and it's about little image bearers being raised in likeness and in purpose. Little people being formed with equal humanity and dignity and identity and biology and spirituality. And it's mind-blowing. I have to say that as, as a couple who have uh, gone through the challenges of fertility treatment, one of the things you come away with is this incredible, incredible uh, perspective on the miracle of life. It's absolutely phenomenal. Not many of you can say you've seen your child as an embryo. And it's just phenomenal. And see, God has deliberately made it the responsibility of the marriage. Not just two individuals, not just a man and a woman, but the marriage. Just as the marriage takes on a life of its own when it's formed, it almost becomes a being. And we work on the marriage and we build the marriage and we serve the marriage. Sex is good for the marriage, not just for the individuals. So the marriage gives birth to new life. Now I'm not saying that single parents can't raise kids or that it's impossible for gay couples to adopt and to raise kids. But I am saying that's not how God designed it. Yes, he gives grace in our brokenness. And often single parenting is a circumstance that cannot be changed. And again, the church needs to be there to help and to care and to support and to love always for all people in all situations. But God has made it his way for a reason. Family is his building block for society. It's not an optional extra. It's not defined and determined by the government. It is designed and determined by the Creator. None of you here can exist without a mother and a father. No matter what that experience was like, and, and sometimes it's, it's not great at all, but that's beside the point. None of you can exist without that. And research shows over and over and over that kids who are deprived of one or the other or of the family unit itself, they suffer for it. That's not just an opinion, that's, that's a fact, that's just how it is. Family is vital to our DNA. And yet just like marriage doesn't demean singleness, so family does not demean childlessness. There can be all sorts of reasons 
for infertility or childlessness in a marriage, but they do not lessen the significance of the marriage. Church circles particularly can at times make it hard for couples who don't have kids because everything revolves around said kids. We found this at times in our struggle with infertility, uh, often feeling like instead of the inclusion of the gospel was at times more like a mother's group, a spiritual mother's group and like-minded connection. And I have said it many times that we are a church family, not a family church. We revolve around Jesus Christ, not our kids or our homes or our families. We are defined by the gospel and that is our unity. And so everyone is welcome and everyone is included and everyone is loved. Ultimately, we are about spiritual procreation or recreation. We are about, as we read before, making disciples. And whether that's of our kids or our colleagues, that's our primary task now. We are about spiritual children as much as we're about biological children. We're about people being born again. That's why we're here. This is what baptism is about. Not just the parents, but the whole church investing in these kids by helping them learn Jesus. This is what the church is about. Introducing others to Jesus and helping others learn Jesus. Whether you're married or single, whether you've got kids or or not, if you are a believer, this is your primary purpose. We're not just about filling the earth, we're about filling the kingdom, the new earth. We're about loving everyone, including those who are sidelined by family brokenness, especially those or who are sidelined by cultural expectations, or who are sidelined by crises of identity or sexuality. We're about pointing to a deeper identity and a deeper humanity, which is found in our Creator and in our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We are about a Saviour who is far more powerful than any woke champion out there. For those here who don't believe, I'll admit that we often suck at this, this self-professed purpose. And we want to apologize for where we choose judgmentalism or defensiveness or for when we play the victim instead of taking responsibility. And so to finish, I just want to share, and today especially, that we have a father who makes up for our weakness who loves perfectly where we fail to. Who adopts us into his family no matter what life that we've lived. He's nothing like our earthly fathers who get masculinity wrong, who get relationships wrong, who get marriage wrong, who get fatherhood wrong, some far worse than others. But he is gentle, compassionate, forgiving, gracious, protective, merciful, and good. Yes, he has boundaries. He has disciplines. 
but they stem from his love for our ultimate good, for our fulfillment, for our enjoyment, for our thriving and our flourishing. I'm going to pray with you. Father, we thank you today for your design. Thank you for the gift of relationships and community. And that you've made us people who need those things and who strive with those things. And thank you for many for the gift of marriage and family. The joys that it brings and the hard times as well. And even more, Lord, we thank you again for all of us for the gift of spiritual family. And we pray, Lord, that the unity we have in Jesus will be primary. Lord, for those here who don't know Jesus, maybe think that these definitions of relationships are wrong or offensive, Lord, just ask that your grace will be clear. I want to pray, Lord, especially for those who struggle in broken relationships, broken marriages or disconnected families, estranged relationships with kids, Lord, I pray that you bring restoration. That you will heal. Pray that, Lord, we will equally as a church care for our married couples and our single members. For families as well as childless couples. That, Lord, these things don't define us, but the gospel does. And I pray, Lord, that you will make us as a church so open and welcoming and inclusive and so loving that we might be a witness of love to a community that feels like the church is the opposite, hateful and judgmental. That we might reach out to those who are questioning identity or sexuality or gender to those who are suffering from broken relationships, to those who are hurting in so many ways and that we, Lord, will bring hope and bring the love of you, our God, our Father. Thank you for your love and your compassion, your deep forgiveness, your goodness, your protective arm over us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.